Welcome everyone to the RPG Goblin. Uh, in today's episode, we are going to be going behind the mist and talking about the MC's Toolkit, which is the book that's actually for the people who would like to run City of Mist itself. And so we will be delving in and talking about how to be a master of ceremonies for City of Mist, how to construct these conspiracy iceberg mysteries that your players will be finding out, how to create powerful and interesting NPCs that fill this city. And we talk about some of the lore that the MC Toolkit actually has for the city itself. This is a fantastic episode, and I brought on Hunter again from the first City of Mist episode to talk about all of this with me. Also, as a little bit of a treat, I suppose, uh, there's actually quite a lot of talk about running games in general in this episode, and Hunter and I talk about experiences with refereeing games and mistakes and stuff like that. So, if all of this sounds like a great time to you, get comfortable, and let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to the RPG Goblin. I am your host, Willow, and this is a podcast where we talk about TTRPG games and basically just go on a deep dive and explore them. Uh, in today's episode, we are going to be, well, this is actually a part two to uh, the City of Mist episodes that we have been doing. Uh, if you haven't listened to the first episode yet, please do that. Uh, but in today's episode, we are specifically going to be talking about the MC Toolkit. So basically, the MC Toolkit is for the person who is running the game, and we are gonna be talking about the information that is in that book. And like the previous episode, we have on Hunter again to be our guest. Hunter, if you would like to introduce yourself. Hello, once again, listeners. I am once again Hunter the GM, also known as Hunter the Master of Ceremonies. And I am also the one behind the Mysteries Unknown podcast and the upcoming soon to be behold, I don't know how to DM podcast. <laughs> or I run everything else that's not uh, City Mist, Power by the Apocalypse, et cetera, et cetera. But today, <laughs> yeah, we are going to be cracking open the Master of Ceremonies Toolkit book, so we can so we can see if you are a first time running this game, just some tips and tricks and all the different details that you need to successfully try to run one. Yeah, I'm super super excited about this because City of Mist, like we were talking about before is a game that I've been super interested in. And so getting more into kind of the game runner side, I'm super excited about that, or I guess the master of ceremony side. So I guess the first thing is, what is the MC Toolkit? Like, how does it describe itself? It's funny that we asked that question because literally when you open this book, the first sentence that this book gives you is that the master of ceremonies is the most important role in the game. The MC is the host, the referee, and the narrator of the game. Oh, and just to let everyone know real quick before I continue, um, these books will usually refer to the master of ceremonies using the she, her pronouns. So if I say mm -hmm. she, this is what they did. This is not me. This is what how they did it. They'll refer to like players and sometimes yourself using the he, him pronouns, and the MC will usually be like she, her pronouns, just to kind of get that cleared up so no one gets confused at all there. Absolutely. <laughs> and says, she also writes most of the locations, characters, and situations that the lead characters will encounter, just like in a TV show, while it's possible, even if undesired, to have an episode without one of the lead characters is much harder to have one without the showrunner. 
The role of the MC can be passed around in the group with different members of your group taking it up for a session or a case, or you could have a single player as a recurring MC, and that is like the first paragraph once you crack open that book. Amazing. Yes, absolutely. So this is basically supposed to help you run your City of Mist games, right? Yes, it has almost everything that you would need to know. So just because I know we're going to deep dive, I'm just going to kind of give some uh, synopsis. So the first chapter it goes in is the Ward on the Street chapter. And this is the one that goes over like the main locations in the game and kind of mm-hmm. like the stuff that goes on in them as well. The second chapter is behind the scenes. And this is how to create and run the cases. And it gives you like all the different moves you can do, how you'll write the case, how to design it, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last one is called This Is My City. And that, the third chapter, this is how you will run your dangers and your avatars in this game, should you choose to do so. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Oh, my God. Yes, I'm really excited about this. Uh, first, though, I mean, we were talking uh, beforehand, and you actually mentioned that you haven't gone through the entire MC toolkit before this. Because I, I assume you've at least looked at it before you started to run your own games, right? Um, I looked at it like a little bit, but it's kind of one of those things. So the City Miss YouTube page also, uh, Kevin Carpenter, who's of the Rolling in the Mist podcast, works with him. He does videos where it goes over like different parts of the book, like how to run like a heist scene or how to make your own dangers, that kind of stuff. So a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff I kind of learned beforehand from watching just these videos as well. And mm-hmm. so... I took some stuff from this book, but a lot of it I just kind of was just like throwing out into the wind with how I was going to run the games for the most part. And so, but actually opening this and going through, I learned quite a bit more about like how to do certain things and all that. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, I think since you've been running the game for a while, I'm curious to cover first kind of the big pieces of information that you learned since you read through the book for the first time. Well, when I was kind of going through this, like a lot of stuff, I was just kind of somewhat able to skim over because it's like, yeah, this was like some of the stuff I knew, like kind of like how to run a session, um, kind of creating some of the dangers and all that. Uh, definitely kind of learning more about the areas in the city was actually kind of interesting to read about just so that way you can kind of get a more understanding because in, in City of Miss Lore, some areas are more shrouded by the mist than others. So mm-hmm. there's some areas where you'll go and you won't see anything. But then if you go to a place like, let's say, the old quarter where the where there's a very thin layer of mist, this is where you will see more of, like, the mythos and people, like, come out. Oh, yeah, no, that's really cool. I like that a lot. <laughs> so after that first paragraph, there's literally a first page that literally just s- describes down the roles of the MC. And it goes into the first one is you as the rider. And this is just saying that you are the one preparing the case that your group will investigate. Mm -hmm. And basically it's like, yeah, this is to help you get to learn as how to be a writer of all these different games. And so I just think that I just like that it's going into details of like how specific your role is when you're running City of Mist. Yeah, what you need to keep in mind. (laughs) Yeah. And then this next one that it goes into, which is something that I really think I struggle in, is you as the referee. You're also the referee of the game between and during sessions. You have the final say on how to interpret and apply the rules of the game. 
And I think this is one, especially for me, that a lot of people struggle with because when you're trying to focus on having a good time at the table, I think some people just end up letting things slide instead Mm -hmm. of just like saying that's not – you can't do that. Because, I mean, of course, there is like the rule of cool, which should be applied to any <laughs> game in my hand, in my opinion. That, that's one thing. So I actually had this happen in the case I last recorded and because there's a lot of stuff that's going to be edited out for this reason, unfortunately. And it's also why I'm half tempted to just say I don't want – I'm always half tempted to just say I don't – I try not to have G- other GMs at my table – because these are the ones that will kind of try to start the more, most arguments on what they can do or say. And I'm not saying that that's a, entirely a bad thing. But when it becomes a common occurrence, I feel like you got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, you don't always want to be arguing or going through, you know, the rules and stuff at the table. Especially when you're trying to play a game. And you don't want it to get, you know, sidetracked for like 10 minutes and, and get distracted with, you know, does this rule say this or what? So, yeah, that's definitely very important for the GM to take on that referee role. Uh, does the, is there any specific advice that you may have or the book has for how to handle that? Let's see. It says, oh, here we go. When you make decisions regarding the rules, your guiding principle should be ensuring the enjoyment of everyone, else, of everyone at the table. If a certain rule gets put gets in the way of fun, make an exemption. If it repeats, consider changing or ignoring the rule. However, note that enjoyment is a complicated thing. Some rules exist to maintain a certain level of challenge in the game or to counterbalance other rules. So consider well what you keep or discard and be ready to retrace your steps if you find that the play experience isn't matching your expectations. Throughout the book, you will find text boxes with optional rules which will allow you to tweak the level of challenge and complexity of your game without breaking its balance. So basically, it's going into saying, like, yeah, make that exception if you want to make sure enjoy it, if you want to make sure everyone's having fun. But if it's starting to get out of hand, kind of put hit that hammer on the head kind of deal. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always think fun is the number one thing. <laughs> That you should be having at a TTRPG game. You should always be having fun. So that's great that they prioritize that over going through the rules specifically and kind of making that the big thing. I like that a lot. Yeah. So you mentioned a, I mean, if, if you want to share, you mentioned experience where there was some issue with having to referee uh, within one of your games. So uh, this. So this specific situation, and I'm not going to name names because me personally, I have no issue with this person whatsoever. They were in the in the long one. It was actually one of the best games I ever ran, despite some of the challenges that may have happened. I still enjoyed mm-hmm. running this game for them. And the other players said that it was a good game, too. The cha- Okay, so I don't know if you're one of the things I remember talking about in the last episode was. Your your power tags are usually have to be specific to what your character could do, with the exception you're allowed to do one broad tag, but you can do almost <laughs> anything with. Now, my kind of rule of thumb is if you want to use that broad tag, like for a few things, yeah, that's great. But if you're just constantly using it over and over and over again, I consider that like an abuse of a power tag. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to, and this player had been using it like so many times in a row. I was trying, and I was trying to say, okay. There has to be something that this power attack can't be used. Yes, I understand that it's broad, but that doesn't mean that every single acting thing you do can be applied to it. Mm-hmm. 
And unfortunately, the other I'm not blaming the other players for this at all. They kind of sided with the other players as well. And at that point, I was just like, okay, fine. I'll let it pass. I kind of wish I was a little more firm on it because I feel like I let a lot of things slide after that too because of that kind of that decision. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that was just kind of my, my personal things is I don't want people to always be abusing power tags in the game because I feel like if you're just abusing it, you're not really expressing the creativity that this game is implying that you need to be doing with it. Yeah, exactly. I... Again, I, I think there's different play styles, of course, and different people are going to want to do different things at the table. But I agree, you know, it doesn't let you be able to explore more creatively like that. Think of different solutions. So that's really unfortunate that that happened. Um, but, you know, it. I think those moments, even if it's like, you know, like, I wish I made a different decision can help in the future with being better at putting your foot down or, you know, making a call on a rule of like, you know, this is just a adjustment that we need to make. Yeah. And it's also kind of the reason why I haven't been doing as much same as stuff. And I've been looking more at other tabletop games as well, just because this also, this incident also kind of opened my eyes to seeing like a lot of the gatekeeping that was starting to go on in like the own, like city of mist discord as well, because mm-hmm. I think, I can't remember. I don't know if I said it on here or if I said it on another show I was doing. Uh, but when the whole Watsy thing started going down and everyone started spreading out to other uh, TTRPGs, those people were taking, were coming into communities, but they weren't changing who they were like as players. So mm-hmm. if they were like, if, so if they were that guy at the D&D table, they're still being that guy at the City of Mist table. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. And that's the, that is the unfortunate thing with other TTRPGs. I shouldn't say the unfortunate thing. There's always going to be a TTRPG out there for anyone, no matter your play style, no matter what. Uh, Though I think people end up picking games that don't fit their play style and the way they want to play most of the times, which ends up in situations like that, where, you know, you need to have the person there to be the referee and make sure that things go smoothly. Uh, Which, I mean, you know, great thing that people are going out and trying different games, but it's always a good idea to actually look at what you enjoy from a game and find a game that will fit that need for you. Agreed. So the last two things it says for the rules of the MC is, and these are kind of fitting the same thing as you as the host and you as the narrator, basically saying that you are hosting this game for these people and you decide who's getting the spotlight. At the table, but when they go because, like I said before, there's no initiative in City of Mist. Everyone's just kind of free, willy nilly, saying what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's up to the MC to decide. Okay, you want to do what? You want to do what? We're going to go to you first, and then once you're done, we're going to cut to you, kind of deal. No, you're good. You as the narrator, you're you're the, basically the one telling the story, mm-hmm. and you're deciding what's going to happen in the story, what moves cause what, that kind of deal, and it's just. And like I said, especially the narrator role, I think is one I really enjoy having that because just, again, like the creativities with this game are what I enjoy the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from the stories that you shared last time with just all the different things that you've created as like NPCs and situations, I I can very much see that. I think that's the best part of any Any GM role in any game that you can play. There's just so much. I mean, being a player is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. 
But running a game and just the creativity and being able to work with the players and the story and what happens and the creativity just wrapped up in that. So, so fun. Yeah. So that actually ties into what we were just talking about earlier. Um, before this podcast started, I was telling you about me being a player for the my second TTRPG and playtesting a game that was both diceless and GMless. Mm-hmm. And at first, I was skeptical about it. But when I started actually playing the game, I got to realize how much more creativity that actually left me to mess with. Yes. So, for those who don't know, uh, you can actually find this on HBO. It's called Uncanny Incorporated. It's just a playtest doc right now. But it's a basically jamless and diceless mechanic where you're playing basically as a, at a supernatural office. And you're <laughs> working at this said office as just office workers. And I and there's different playbooks. It's basically set up similar to Powered by the Apocalypse games. It has playbooks for your characters, and you have certain moves and things you can do. And my playbook I chose was the Office Slacker. And literally, one of the things I got to set up was I got to set up a scene where my Slacker started a conga line with all the Office ghosts because we worked for the HR Department of Death. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> so yeah. That's so good. Actually, and this was another good one. I forgot about this. If you go to the next page in the MC Toolkit, it goes over the MC Principles. And I'm not going to go too deep into this. I'm just going to just kind of bullet point it. Uh, So the principles for being the MC are communicate with the group. So very obvious one right there. Make sure you're communicating with everyone in the group. Uh, play Play to find out. And that's playing into the narrative aspect where if you want to do something, play it and find out what happens kind of deal. Don't just say, don't. I think it also says in here, don't try to set everything up like word for word. Let it play out. Find out what happens. Play as you go. Then this one I actually like. It's be the character's biggest fan. Make their lives interesting. Because you're creating this world for them to be in. Make the lives of the players in this game interesting. Like just throw stuff out there if you have to. Make it just as fun as can be. And then the last one is Think Somatic, because again, this is supposed to be a mystery noir type game. And it actually says in the book that when you can actually, when you use words like pan out, cut to, uh, fade to black, these are actual things that it encourages you to use in the game because it's treated almost like a mystery noir type film. Mm hmm. You know, that's really good. I like that a lot. And I mean, I've, I think I said this in the last City of Mist episode, but I love just the, I love the direction of even the wording with the stuff like the, you know, principles being more themed towards a TV show. Because I think that's just such an easy way to get into that mindset when you're actually running the game and just think, you know, oh, well, what would it be like in a TV show? <laughs> yeah. And so those first two pages, I think, are very detrimental for if you're trying to be a first-time MC. You definitely want to take those roles and principles to hearts yes. to make sure you're just doing it to the best of your ability. And with that, we can now start going into the main meat of this book with the first chapter, The Cinematography of the City. And it, it describes in the first paragraph of this page, the city is the backdrop of your story. It's streets, alleyways, and rooftops are where your crew will uncover the disturbing truths, unleash their mighty powers in the fight for what matters to them the most, and make harsh sacrifices. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they're very, very and, exciting. And it just goes into like the different parts of like what you will find in like an urban area of Syria. Like it goes into like its geography, the infrastructure, 
transportation, population demographics, you name it, it's probably there somewhat to an extent. Goes into describing your city in the game. It goes into how to use the districts. And then there's the nature of the city. Mm-hmm. And so because, how helpful did you find all this information for giving like more structure to the city as a MC? So originally, I think when I was running games, I wasn't focused on as much of like, well, how these districts were, unless they played like a part of the story. I was more focused of the stuff that was happening in them. Mm-hmm. So, but if you're trying to like have things happen in like certain areas, I definitely would say this does provide more of a detail for like how something works. Mm-hmm. And it actually goes very depth into details. Like, for example, the first one it talks about is the downtown area. And it says downtown is where it's all happening. It's the beating heart <laughs> of the city, pumping millions of souls in and out every day. Locals and visitors of all walks of life who come here for business, pleasure, or both. And it just goes into like what you will find. Like there's places of interest, the subway station, theater Avenue, the alley or the financial district. And it goes, and it has a little thing in here that talks about, like we were saying, the thin places where the mist is thinner, where your mythos can more come out. It'll actually also tell you like the locals in the area. And it actually says like, if they have mythos, it'll say it like there's a local in downtown named Judas Wells. Who's the rift of the frog prince. (laughs) <laughs> no that's awesome i like that they give you all of that uh context and setup especially because if you want to run the your own game and kind of the actual like city that they set up it makes it so much easier and just gives you all of these things that you can just grab and, and use though it seems like it also uh has enough wiggle room that you can even put your own aspects into the city as well yeah, so basically, yeah, this is like you can make all this work to whatever store you're running, depending on how you're going to run it. So, like I said, and then like another one, like I was talking about, one I like to use is the old quarter. And centuries ago, maybe even millennia, migrating people first settled in the area that is now the city. They were met by indigenous tribes, as history tells us, or if you want the romanticized version, by monsters, spirits, and gods. Their settlement thrived and evolved, growing greater in fortune and population as time went by. Eventually, it became this city you see before you. But it all started here in the Old Quarter. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, (laughs) because the Old Quarter is supposed to be like, this is where it all started for the city. So you'll find, like, all the antique parts of the city here. Like, there's a a museum there. The University of the city is also there. And there's also... A ruin, there's a ruin of some cities because again it's old, and then you'll find myths of like Ella Kirky of Circe the Sorceress. <laughs> so many different things. Oh yeah. So what is what is that place? Ah, here we go. There's so for each one, there's something called there's a section that's called Beyond the Mist, and this goes into like how the mist plays in mm-hmm. the the, the uh, they're called districts in this. So it says the old quarter seems to be where the mist is thinnest in town. Whether that's due to some mystical property of this quarter is beyond anyone's knowledge. But it might just be that in the old quarter, the mist simply has less work to do. The people who live and come here already know this place is weird and they expect nothing less of it. With this reinforced suspense of disbelief in place, the mist can concentrate its work elsewhere. As a result, the old quarter is the district with the most newly awakened people. It is the perfect place for the touched 
who can explore their mythos under the guise of artistic or academic pursuits. Oh, that's so cool. Now all I can think as well is a freaking playing as a character who's an artist in, in this game with a really weird mythos. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of weird mythos, there's also like there's sometimes there's a case where a group of people have the same mythos. Like there's a family in the old core called the Dumonts and they're all the rift of the hunchback of the Notre Dame. That's cool. Yeah, and I also love how last episode we talked about Baba Yaga, and the old quarter already has someone with the rift of Baba Yaga. <laughs> they already knew. They already had it set up. <laughs> yeah. And then it just keeps on going to other places, and there's like a couple other districts that it mentions as well. They're just kind of like smaller areas that maybe some stuff happens, but not high. Like there's the ethnic borough, which is like, Place it's just basically it's supposed to be based on places like Chinatown, Jamaica Town, Japan Town, Koreatown, Little Italy, Little Greece, Spanish Quarter, etc. That's kind of what the idea for the ethnic borough is. Then you have the beachfront, there's the crime ridden slum, the gated community, just a bunch of other different places that you can just use to your limits to explore and all that. Absolutely. Oh man, that is really cool. I like that they have all of that that you. I mean, use the exact word, explore. Like, you can just explore these different places that they have set up, and that just sounds so, so cool. And then it has a section that's called What the League Characters Don't Know Yet. It's time to bring you up to speed on what is really happening in the city. Up to this point in this chapter, the city is described from the perspective of the League characters' relatively new rifts who are only beginning to discover the secret world around them. At least some of the characters know that there are other rifts in the city, people like them who have legendary powers. And like the League characters' own powers, those legendary powers are hidden from the larger population by the the mystical veil of the mist. What the characters don't know is that the city is the playground or war zone of two types of arcane and timeless forces, the Mythoi and the Mist. And this one goes into, uh, it talks about the Mythoi, their avatars, and their operations. So it's basically saying, like, how do these Mythoi play a role in the city? Mm-hmm. And then there's the Mist, and like we talked about, the Gatekeepers. And the Gatekeepers yeah. are the ones that use the, myth- the uh, weaponize the Mist to hide the rift activity from the sleepers. And the sleepers are, again, basically the muggles of, like, Harry Potter. They have no powers. (laughs) Normal people. (laughs) Absolutely. No, that's really, really cool. Actually, this makes me think. What is the advice that the MC Toolkit gives for creating NPCs and avatars and stuff like that within the city? Um, I think that was going to go more into the third chapter when it goes into like all the dangers and stuff. Mm-hmm. So you, we can either you want to go ahead and fast forward to that or do you want to go into the next chapter, which talks about how to create and run cases? Um, I'm curious about the NPCs and then we can get into cases because I definitely all right. want to cover that. So chapter three, this is my city about dangers and avatars. And then it says, throughout the series, the lead characters are destined to encounter a wide range of characters, locations, and situations that will challenge them or pose a threat to their investigation or their lives. Such threats can be rifts endowed with legendary powers or mundane adversaries and hazards. Mm-hmm. So, like, basically this is saying that sleepers can be uh, enemies and also cert- you can actually imbue locations with rift powers as well. Yeah, and make that like kind of an 
an enemy or a hazard, like you said. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, like how we talked about um, when I was talking about ba- my Baba Yaga rift, how she had the chicken leg hut. If they were to discover that hut, <laughs> that could be itself be a danger of its own. For sure, yeah. And I actually, after we did that episode, I did like a prompt thing for a TTRPG challenge that I'm doing where I'm basically like writing story ideas. And I wrote a whole prompt with the idea of a like essentially like a haunted house that was actually truly a haunted house but it seemed like just like a you know a halloween party house that someone got invited to but in reality it's actually like a real haunted house that slowly gets revealed and i just love the idea of being able to use actual locations as threats it's so so cool yeah so i kind of did that with the uh uh, my Halloween one shot I did last year. Um, the house that my players went to to find the horror movie monster riffs they were finding. I kind of took mm-hmm. inspiration from the Monster House from the Monster House movie. Oh, that's in that so regard, cool. yeah, yeah, because that was that's such an underrated movie in itself. Monster House was so good, so good. I'm sorry, were you about to say something? Uh, I was going to say I've never heard of it. Actually. You've never seen Monster House? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh my <laughs> god, you have not lived yet. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't seen as many movies as I would like to have seen. <laughs> you have to look it up and watch it at some point. It's really good. You will not be disappointed, I promise. Back to so it goes in so before it goes into the um creating of the NPCs and dangers, it talks about like dangers and statuses and the spectrums and so like I was talking about in the last episode, instead of like get lose, gaining or losing HP, you will take and lose statuses. And you mm-hmm. can get them from one all the way up to six. With five being you're unconscious, but you're still able to do something. With N6 being either you're dead or changed extraordinarily in some way. That's all to the MC's discretion. And it goes over to like, it shows some examples of like, how to like, what kind of like examples of like, what kind of stats you can give them. And then the spectrums are more like, how much the damage or what the, or what does this person have to do to the danger to get them to stop attacking them? Because you don't have to like just beat them into submission to beat them. You could convince them to do something. You can inflict some other sort of status to them. Like I had one, I did one game where basically these, uh, the players were fighting against the, uh, some corrupt police officers that were the rift of the three musketeers. And she used uh, nightmare abilities to basically scare them away. Oh, I like that a lot. I love I love whenever a game will give you options for nonviolent things. It just again opens up that creativity to have even more fun. Yeah, and it just kind of goes into like spectrums as ongoing conflicts. Like you can like have spectrums for like long periods of time until you like be a condition of them. There's countdown spectrums, which is like if it's like if this spectrum gets to so much or if it gets down so much, it's going to cause something to happen. What it is, you're going to find out the hard way. Oh, yeah. I like that. Oh, yeah. No, that kind of. So it's like a countdown uh, sort of like um, reminds me of Blades a little bit where you have like those countdown clocks that, you know, you slowly make progress to have something big happen. Yeah, it literally counts it as a countdown spec. A countdown spectrums is literally what they're called in the City of Mist. Like, if I find one on here, we'll do it. I'll talk about more. And then there's, like, immunities. So, like, you can have it to where dangerous or, like, immune to certain things. Like, in my Demons of Crosshead case, that Staghead Demon, 
the only way he could really be like hurt is with holy powers. And if it was like anything else besides a holy power attack, it was like the stats of it was lowered by like four or something. Mm-hmm. So like if unless you had like like a, a sword that was like engraved with like some holy magic in it, that would be the only way to like kill it without that the immunity taking effect. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I like that. Think creatively. <laughs> yeah. Then it goes into uh, danger moves and hard and soft moves. So the so in the MC toolkit, not just here as well, it goes into something called hard and soft moves. The soft moves are more like, oh, just this kind of thing happens, but it's not going to affect as much. But if so many things can happen in a row and the players aren't either doing anything or they've tried and they're not succeeding, the MC can then invoke a hard move, which... Yeah. One of my this is things about powered by the apocalypse. <laughs> like this is like this is failing. I'm basically I'm now going to screw you over. Mm-hmm. Well, something bad happens. It's not even exactly. necessarily screw you over. Things are not going in your favor. The environment is going to do something, or not the environment, but the story isn't going to go your way. So hard move is just adding more complications to the story because you aren't making the progress that you need to and it's like really really cool oh no some of these hard moves that gives examples could basically screw a player over with depending on what they're trying to do like there is like one example is a fatal headshot with dead six for the status that's a hard move for the mc yes because there are literally some dangers built in place where it's like if you don't do anything in a certain amount of time they could just upright Oh my god. Well, I mean, I but there's there's things like that where it's like it could be a much bigger threat that you're kind of facing through and that's like something that would happen near the end. You know, when something Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cuz I mean, I'm like, I'm not, hold on. She's getting shot in the head. Oh no. This is just an example of something that a player or a danger can do. It's not going to be like that for everything, but it's like yeah, this is like if a danger has this hard move in place, if something happens, then yeah, it could do this. But it, I'm pretty sure it has to be one of those things like you got to meet like a certain re- situation for that to just suddenly like, pow, you did. Yeah, you got to do some really bad failing to get to that point. But I mean, I actually really like the way that hard and soft moves are used within like the Powered by the Apocalypse games or like kind of the ones that are inspired and adjacent. Because I've, I run a Monster of the Week game, and recently in a session, I had two players fail when they were trying to do research. And one player was just trying to help the other, and then the other person was trying to research. And with both those failures kind of coming to the end of the mystery that we're in, that failure caused for their office that they have like all their monster hunting stuff in to actually get broken into and stuff stolen... And caused the victim that is uh, caused a person that they are trying to keep an eye on to be to essentially get captured by this monster again and is in immediate danger. And I if that was near the beginning of the mystery. I wouldn't have done those exact moves because that would be way too soon to kind of put the. Vic- the like final victim in an immediate danger it would have been too much to already have like this one break-in thing happen so it was like okay but as soon as it got kind of like later what we were talking with the headshot thing you know as things get like set up over time and it gets later into the thing the stakes get higher those types of moves get harder 
And so just with those failures, because that's how the Powered by the Apocalypse system works for Monster of the Week, is if you fail, a hard move happens. And they are so, so fun. They might fuck over your players a little bit, but they're so fun. <laughs> so something funny that happened during my V is for going viral case I was running. For like the first three or four sessions, we had a curse going around where the first roll that any player did at the start, the first roll of, of that session, the player always got snake eyes. Oh, no. And that happened for like three or four sessions for a while. So we're like, That's we'll see so what funny. happens. At first, it, the same player was the one doing it. And then when it switched over to another player, it happened to him. <laughs> and then the following player, <laughs> the the second, then the following <laughs> player for the second roll would roll like an instant success, like a 12 or higher suddenly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the table turns. Well, does City of Mist have that as well? Is it when you roll a failure? Is it uh, you have to, not you have to, but... A hard move follows as the MC. Basically, that's like if you get the six or below, yeah, something bad will mm-hmm. happen. But if it's a snake, I don't think it really specifies if you get like the snake eyes, that's even worse. But if it's a failure, I just make it like something fun happen, like the funny, like a funny failure happens. Like in mm-hmm. the, uh, my sources, Sky Mummies one shot that I ran with them, uh, they, two of the players were trying to crawl in through the vents in the police station. One got a mixed success and the other one failed. So I had to where she fell from the vent onto the office desk below, right in front of the three musketeer uh, cops. Oh, no. <laughs> that's heartbreaking. Oh, but that's really good, though. And I again, the creative uses that just you can do with the hard moves is really, really good. Because, again, at least for Monster of the Week, they give like a list of some move examples that you can use. For soft or hard to kind of lead up or, you know, do it immediately. And I think it is so helpful, especially because these games are so good at, like, doing a specific idea well. So they'll just make those moves just to try and help that specific idea come across even more. So, like, a monster move is, like, being able to show its full power, which is, like, really cool and fits really well within Monster of the Week because that's what that game's good at. Uh, What are some of the examples for moves in the mc toolkit because it goes to other stuff like it talks about using collective so if, like if you're finding like a group of monsters it'll, you'll start off mm-hmm. with like a negative status depending on how many like it goes from one to a handful several many or a host or oh, if wow. you were if you're if you're finding a host of members you're starting at minus four for your role e. E, that sucks <laughs> yeah and then it goes into like adding spectrums and moves on the fly because, like I say before, I pull everything out of my butt. And so I'm just <laughs> a lot of the stuff, like a lot of the stasses and moves I'll have the uh, dangers do are just on the fly. Like mm-hmm. I will take inspiration from like what they've made in the book, but a lot of times I'm not using like what they have set in place sometimes, just depending on what I'm trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, then- and I think that just opens it to even more freedom, uh, like creative freedom. And keeps also the conditions relevant. <laughs> so if we're going to talk about custom moves and like what moves they do, I say this is a point for us to have fun. Let's have a, let's make let's actually go ahead and make our own danger because it actually shows us like all the different profiles we hit we that in the game that we can use to make our own danger. Absolutely, hell yeah, let's do it. All right, so give me. Hmm, how do I want how do I want to ask this question? <laughs> like just think of like 
someone in the city, what job, what their job would be, and what kind of mythos you think they would have? Oh, good, good questions. Um, I think that having a butcher character, like a person who works at a butcher shop, would be very cool. Mythos, that is a much harder question, because there could be so many interesting things that um, you can do. Ooh, now I have to try and think of, like, a character, an idea. I guess the question is, do we want the mythos to fit the kind of idea for the character, or do we want to do something that would be kind of conflicting and interesting? That is entirely up to you. I will put that decision in your hands. (laughs) So, I mean, you've mentioned before how you've done, like, uh, characters from, like, games or or movies as mythos, right? Yes. Um, For some reason, the first thing that's coming to mind is, like, and this might be because we've been talking about Glitter Hearts and, like, the Moonlight games is, like, a magical girl mythos of some kind. Maybe, uh, is this for an enemy or just as a NPC? Basically. Dangers and NPCs kind of fall almost in the same category in the most part. Mm-hmm. So it's they're calling it a danger profile, but this could be like an NPC. And if they angered that NPC, it would then become a danger. And then based on that danger, it would have certain moves and stuff that they could do. Okay, absolutely. Then I don't know why. Let's go like Tuxedo Mask from Sailor Moon as the mythos. So a butcher that has magical girl powers in a sense is what we're going for. Yep. Okay. That's a that's an so, character. <laughs> so I think when I'm looking at this, from what the book gives me at the off the bat, the butcher I would put under the helpless city resident, which is anyone in the city who cannot fend for themselves or does not pose a serious threat can be considered a helpless city resident. Such individuals often need the crew's protection and can be used to support the lead characters or their adversaries. And right off the bat, it has the spectrum of hurt or subdue one or scare one. So they could easily fend off this butcher right off the bat if they wanted to, if he didn't have his mythos. And some of the moves he has, um, Helpless State Resident can have one of the following moves according to her background. So it doesn't really have anything that would fit the butcher, but say if it was like a spunky kid, the spunky kid could pick up a stone or pull out a sling. A doctor could give medical assistance to remove a tear of a negative physical status. Ooh, we could say this butcher is like a retired citizen of some sort, so he can give someone a temporary good advice status. Yeah, let's go with that. That's fun. <laughs> so he's like that one of those scenes where it's like he's just chopping up meat and he's talking to someone, giving him advice kind of deal. Yeah, like like as a um, you know, you're trying to since this whole thing is like figuring out mysteries and stuff like that this is someone like you go and visit um to try and get more information and you have a whole scene of where the person's giving you good advice (laughs) yeah so i don't know if you actually have this book too or not but on a lot of these names some of them will have stars by them and the stars are basically saying like how much of a threat these people might be so off the bat, the Helpless City residents have A stars because off the bat, they're not that much of a threat. But say if it was someone that was a mover and shaker, which is more like this is someone that's causing a lot of stuff going on in the city, they're a four-star at a danger. And then, like I said, 
it also and it separates them all like so the helpless city resident was from city residents category you have a criminals category law enforcement security category and then like i was talking about earlier there's a location in hazards category as well yes so you have (laughs) that you have a derelict building you have a house fire you have a time bomb danger naturally (laughs) citywide epidemic and a junkyard compactor as location dangers Oh my god. I love that so much. I don't know why. I just think it is so fascinating to have locations as not evil, but like adversaries. It's so cool. It really is. I love that they have it as well. Oh, it makes me so happy. <laughs> okay, and now we're going to go into... So that was lo- basically the sign of the Dangerous Logos. So now we're going to go into the Mythos Power Set. So I am looking at some of these to figure out which one of these... Would fit for so there is a there's one here that sticks out. It's called Messenger of the Light, which, for example, it gives like an angel, saint, the fairy godmother, or a white magician. But then when I think about the few episodes I have seen of Sailor Moon, when I think about Tuxedo Mask, one of the, the moves they have is protection from evil. When a messenger of light takes a status from a source that is inherently evil or dark, you can reduce the status by two. That's cool. Yeah, I and like I f- that a lot. Yeah, I, and I feel like that even though the tuxedo mask has like kind of this, it's almost like this air of dark persona around him. He's still like a very much good, like lighthearted person at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think I think this one would fit him perfectly. He also would have bless or enchant someone to protect them from evil or banish the forces of evil or darkness. God, this is some magical girl shit. <laughs> yeah, and he only would get like one and. Of course, with all your uh, Mythos Sisters, uh, it adds star ratings to it. So he goes up to a one-star adversary from being a butcher that's a messenger of light. That is well. so cool. What a but, title. Butcher, messenger of light. Amazing. Yeah, but then you also have, like, you have a trickster mythos, a weapon bearer mythos, warrior mythos. And it just tells you, like, how much, like, danger it can you can add on to like you can be a demigod you can be an elemental a hunter or a ghost so so many options yeah and it tells you like what kind of like examples you could base off like for a winged creature mythos like it could be based around the flying monkeys from wizard of oz pegasus or quetzalcoatl from aztec mythology Mm -hmm. and then The f- cool. And then from there, it also shows you the other danger profiles that happen in the city. So these are actual created NPCs. So you have you have actually a person named Alice, who's the Rift of Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, you have- actually, sorry, I've, I've seen this page and I know there's a Phantom of the Opera one and I, I just really like musicals. So <laughs> uh, yes, yes, there is. I'm trying to remember where I saw that. I can't remember where I saw that, but just, this one just goes into like a few of them. Like in the old quarter, there's the magic sword, which is the the rift of the flaming sword of Eden. Oh, that's uh, cool. Paul Dumont, who's the gargoyle from Quasimodo. <laughs> I just love how fun these characters are. They're just and, so fun. <laughs> and one that I've really wanted to mess with on a game. Her name is Rachel Delaney, and she's the rift of Rapunzel. But her hair can transport you throughout the city. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, man. So, I mean, that's getting into, like, the NPCs and stuff, and it seems like they have a lot of really good materials within the book um, for creating these avatars and NPCs, and I think that is fantastic. Though, I'd love to get a bit more into the cases now, since we wanted to cover that as well. Yeah, we can come back to the avatars in a bit, because it actually goes into, like, one thing that I completely forgot when it comes to avatars is it's not just one person. The avatars have a whole operation of people that work underneath them. So when you're creating avatars, you're not just creating one person. You're creating everyone that's underneath them as well. Kind of like it's almost kind of like how a mafia family is structured where you get the godfather at the head and then all yeah, the other that. underlings. <laughs> that's so good. Well, I think that I mean, that just is. That would be so fun, though, to do, like, a super mafia kind of focused, like, City of Mist game where there's, like, all these different, like, quote-unquote families with, like, the different avatars. That would be fun. Yeah, though, so, but like I actually, like I said, Rolling in the Mist are currently doing kind of like a bad guys-esque campaign where they're all under the servitude of the uh, the Olympus Mafia family, which is all riffs of the Olympus mm-hmm. gods. That's awesome. And I'm trying to remember... Uh oh, the uh, rift of uh, Dionysus is just this free-loving party guy, but his name is Donnie Sus. <laughs> Donnie Sus, what a dude! <laughs> Absolutely, oh man, that's amazing. I, I I recommend please going to check out like actual plays for City of Mist. Check out Mysteries Unknown Hunters podcast. Check out Rolling in the Mist. Check out like anything that you can find because I think. No matter the game, it's going to be so interesting just to hear what people create. Because there's so many opportunities within this game. So please go check out those those podcasts and, and all of that. Because And check out City of Mist itself. Great game. <laughs> you can actually find a majority of these Let's Play things on City Mist's site. If you hit their media tab, there's an option for actual play shows. And I'm not on there yet, but I put in the form to be on that list. So hopefully I'll be on that list at some point, but it shows all podcasts and YouTube shows. There's also some in other languages too. Like there's a French one. There's a Portuguese one. I think there's a German one on there as well now. Mm-hmm. So That's because awesome. I, yeah, because they've been, uh, city of Mist has been slowly work making a uh, city of Mist to be in other languages as well. Cause I think they have one in French. I think they're working on a German one. I can't remember for sure at the top of my head, but yeah, this is a uh, city of Mist is being played worldwide almost currently. Yes, that's amazing. I I love that this game has gotten a lot of recognition because it's really, really awesome. And I even found it through like seeing it on like social media before even hearing about it. Like, like before, like I didn't just find it. I heard about it on like social media and things like that. So it's awesome that it's like got so much love and people have really been enjoying it because it is, again, such a cool game. Yeah, I've seen other like popular like TTRPG YouTubers start talking about now when they talk about like other games besides D and D or like rules like games to play. I've seen City Mist get mentioned on the list, and I remember one guy he was talking about Power by the Apocalypse games, and City of Mist was on the list, and a bunch of us were like, "You forgot City of Mist." <laughs> <laughs> you need to you need to mention it. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, and then he then he made like another comment, another video it was like, "Oh yeah, I forgot about this City of Mist." <laughs> it's it's a great game absolutely uh yeah so let's get into some of uh into the what the mc toolkit recommends for structuring 
the cases because that is like a big, I mean, obviously every single part of this book is a big part of the game, but cases are like the thing that you will be doing. So I'm curious of what it says about those. All right. So I'm going to be kind of jumping back and forth between we're now rewinding back to the second chapter, which is going behind the scenes. And this is <laughs> again, all about how to create it. So I'm going to jump ahead. Um, we're going to, dis- I'm going to discuss writing the case. And when you write the case, you use a method that's called the iceberg effect. Mm-hmm. And basically, you have your hooks at the top of the iceberg. And then as you go farther down under the depths, you're learning more until you get to the bottom, which is the truth behind it all. And it actually shows – it gives examples of like how – if you want to deep – if you want to make it like deep, like there's like – it starts at like the zero depth – you can go all the way down to like a depth four if you want to be like that involved in this case with what's going on. Mm-hmm. And this is basically. And... Sorry. <laughs> no, you can go ahead. Um, is this also good for planning out not just sessions or not? I shouldn't say sessions, not just like a single case, but even like connecting arcs as well, because that's like the first thing that comes to mind of like being able to structure. Uh, structure a much larger picture using this kind of iceberg uh, uh, effect. Yes. Oh, so this is yeah. So you can basically like tie multiple cases to like one big arc. And the fun thing about it, it, it's not a, it's not just a straight up and down. Like something from like let's say depth one can go diagonally down to another case that's connected to like depth two. Or something in depth three can also connect to something else that's going on at that same depth as well. So we can go like diagonally and side to side as well. Like everything can connect in one way or another, depending on how the players play everything out. So it's not all, it's not, it's not, it's not going from straight. Here's what happened to, oh, now we solved the case. No, there's like all these different steps you can take to get there, depending on what you're doing. Because if you don't, because if you fail on so many rolls and this one thing doesn't work out, you now have this other thing you have to rely on that's going to tie a whole new narrative to what you're trying to do. Yeah, and it kind of is an interesting way for the MC to even set up different like plot hooks like within the mysteries, being like, you know, maybe there's this option to go check out and investigate. Now I'm just thinking about the butcher character, the butcher shop and talk to the butcher, or there's another way that you can actually go and talk to some mythos, a like mythos mafia family. And maybe you could do both of those things, but it's an interesting way to almost like give those options that then connect to things below it. Even if you just do one. Yeah. So sorry. I was just reading over because it then goes into the steps of like how to create everything. And step one, it goes into the backstory. So this mm-hmm. is how you're trying to basically you're writing all out like how everything came to be like why are the players now on this mission? So mm-hmm. let's say for example, uh, let's say the 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 rift of the sorcerer Cirque is running this um she's running some kind of she's running this uh heist ring where they're stealing priceless jewelry and artifacts, and the butcher who's the mythos of Tuxedo Man now is been trying to put a stop to it and is like succeeding and not succeeding at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's a backstory to why this party is now getting involved Absolutely. to this game. And, it, and you have stuff like you, there's basic questions like um, 
Who's involved in the case? What drives the rift more, her mythos or her ordinary life? Because like we've dis- like I've discussed many times, your character, it's always trying to balance their humanity and their mythos. So mm-hmm. when the case is playing out, who is getting more from this? Who you are in your ordinary life or your mythos that's in there laid inside you? Who's getting more from this interaction? Absolutely. I like that. Again, I like the struggle of that a lot. I think that's really cool in that they actually keep that in mind when even structuring the arcs and the cases. Yeah. And then the second step, too, is your trail of breadcrumbs. And this is basically going over, okay, you have this all set up. The party's now involved. How are they getting to everything now? What is Mm going to be what is going to hook them into this and send them on their way? to figure out how to solve and stop this, what's happening. And like I said, it can go any which way. So you can have like three different hooks that could tie into different things, but they're all going to lead at some point to the same direction and the same result. Yes, which is really, really cool. Because it's like, yeah. it was this grand master plan that was behind it all along. <laughs> yeah, and then step three, it goes into adding your dangers. And this is now going into, okay, you have you have your story laid out. You have all your clues and your places kind of set up. Who are they going to face now? Mm-hmm. So, so let's say at some point, the Rift of the Sailor Moon Scouts is going to appear at some point during the middle of their <laughs> search. They may experience like a couple of them throughout their journey, and they can either – they may convince them to either help them out or they may become adversaries for the party. It all comes down yeah. to the players in the dice. Exactly. And then just – and I think that's the – I can't remember if it was one of the principles, but it was something that you said earlier. Play to find out. You know, you are playing to find – you are just – as the MC, you are setting up these situations to then see what happens, which is so cool. I love that so much because, exactly, could become they could become adversaries. They could work with you. They could even provide information, stuff like that. It's – there's so many different ways that it could happen. Yeah, and that's one thing I will always make sure I emphasize. Like, you can plan out as much of something as you want, but you have to remember at the end of the day, the party is always liable to throw something out the window. It's always, it's going to go off the rails in one way or another. I always expect that, which is why I always say I don't even do that much planning usually. I have Mm -hmm. what I want to start, and I have a few basic ideas for the ending. And then everything else is basically up to chance. Exactly, because, you know, it exactly that, though. The party could just go a completely different direction or do something that you didn't plan for. It's always good to be, like, ready. Uh, I, I agree, though. Very little planning. For my even personal games, I usually do something of a beginning, a middle, and an end of, like, kind of roughly how I want the session or even the kind of mystery or whatever they're working on to go. So I have a base idea in my head, but I'm like refusing to fill out the details because I, because <laughs> if you end up planning too much, you can be caught in a spot where you don't know what to do when your players do something that isn't something you planned for. So I find that looser planning style to be really, really useful. And that's that's awesome that you do it as well, because it's like, you know, I'm ready for anything. <laughs> so I'm going to share this again really quick, because it ties into this, what we're talking about a little bit. So mm-hmm. my last episode, I shared how my Demons and Cross End case ended, and it wasn't anything I expected. My original ending that I had thought of for that game was, 
So one player and an NPC I had, I had said we'd set up story wise they were old war buddies. And the line question, and the and it had one of these line questions where it was like, because part of the thing in the game is sometimes you have to ask provoking questions. And yes. one of the provoking questions throughout this whole case was, are you a true believer? Because the idea was only the heart of a true believer can shut away the, the, the stack head for good. And mm-hmm. my idea was the heart of a soldier, the person that would be willing to lay down their lives for people they don't know for their country, is just is so pure of heart that he that what I was because he was the will of the wisp, I was gonna have basically have my NPC do an ultimate stop holding back move to where he turned into the will of the wisp's tree and sealed the stack head inside the tree. That would be really cool, yeah. But no, instead it was crush him with a church. <laughs> Nothing wrong with either endings. <laughs> There's not. But just think, but I love how it's like, oh, I had this really cool, awesome, like wholesome, sad moment that would have really like added to the story's narrative. And then this player was like, no, we made, we tricked you to set up a thing where that we could use the church against the daemon. So now we're going to crush it with the entire church remains. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, but it's like, it's, <laughs> take holy power, bitch. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, like we just said, you can't plan out too much. But like I said, I usually have like the rough idea of how I want to end. That was my rough idea of how I wanted to end, and it just didn't happen. So yeah, and it at least gives you some context. It, it helps you. It helps you kind of move along with the session. You can start hinting at things like that, and even if it doesn't come to fruition, it's still something that kind of keeps the, you know, you still have some like context, and you have stuff that you already had planned for the story that you don't have to worry too much about. Like oh. You know, I didn't exactly know. Like, you had the basic thing of, like, the holy. Like, being only being able to really be defeated by something holy or, like, the, the heart. Um, so there were truly two directions. It's just, it did really go into the holy power uh, church getting squashed direction <laughs> instead. <laughs> yeah. And then... um the next part of that chapter, and I actually that's actually ties to what you asked earlier. It's called it goes into about designing a series. And this is more like how to do like multiple cases all into like one overarching story. Which is so cool. So it's it. so you have like so it goes to like the burning questions, which are like, what are the questions that these players are asking that's gonna tie everything together? You have your story elements, your plot ideas, using and building up your series resources, which are like your feet which are like different themes they can come across like because like i said they can forget they can get extra themes throughout their the whole entire story like mm-hmm. you can get a new relic or you can steal someone's powers like yes. you don't you can plan all this you can plan some kind of some of that stuff then it goes into like the story arcs and then it goes into the bigger iceberg so like mm-hmm. how you have like the regular iceberg for like how a case is ran, you then have the bigger iceberg for how all these cases get ran and fit into the overarching story. Mm-hmm. Which is really, really cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And then they also have, it goes into the operation iceberg, but that's like we were discussing your avatar and all the underlings. Mm-hmm. Which that's because- just, you know, figure it out and, and stuff when you get to it. <laughs> Because there is, um, I'm trying to figure, remember how they call it. Because avatars can impose their mythoi onto other people forcefully as well. So they, so it, I think they, this is what they call. So there's like an, so you have an avatar. Let's say, for example, an avatar of Hades. He mm-hmm. could then 
touch he could then touch people to have like some of his powers as well. Okay, yeah. Interesting. And it's actually funny I say that because there actually goes into there uh some of the other avatars you'll find in the story. There is an actual avatar of Hades, and he is a mafia boss. <laughs> of course. <laughs> what else would he be? <laughs> Yeah, he's like one of the main guys that a lot of people will talk about when they talk about avatars. And his name is Anatoly Vidales. Oh, what a guy. <laughs> yeah. And it and it kind of goes into like this whole overview of like because they all have their own agenda, their MO, some emotions they have, motives. They it says who their frontliners are, like who works for them, and then mm-hmm. what their stronghold is. And for and and for Vidalis is a stronghold. It's a re- Greek restaurant that's called Persephone. Oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I like yeah. that. It, it's just really cool the way that you can use these characters and myths and legends and all of that within this game. It is just fascinating. Yeah, and as for like other resources, like it also gives you it has there's MC sheets in this book as well, so that way you can like write stuff on it. Like it has like it goes your principles and your intrusions, your moves and all that. It has an iceberg sheet so that way you can like write out your iceberg sheet as well. Mm-hmm. There's tracking stuff in here. And then it actually gives you a case in the MC toolkit called gambling with death. And this is like the first case. If you're using the MC toolkit, you will run as an MC if you choose to do that. And have you I, I'm, I'm assuming not, but have you run this uh, case yet? I have not had a chance to run Gambling with Death yet. So for what I've heard with Gambling and Death, it, t- it almost ties into the case that's in the All-Seeing Eye Investigation starter set. Mm-hmm. So, when, so when I finally get the time to run that set of cases, I'm going to run this one with it as well. So this is kind of, so this is, Gambling with Death is kind of like the prequel case to that story. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. So how, um, and I am, because I know that you have run some of the things uh, how good are the pre-written, like, cases that the City of Mist people have done? Uh, there's been really good, for, in my opinion, at least. So it really will go over, like, all the stuff you need to know, like, before you start the game. Mm-hmm. Like, it goes over to, like, for, just, I'll take Gambling with Death, for example. So it goes into, like, part of the backstory, and there's a... This is go. It revolves around a hotel slash casino manager who's a rift of like they just call it the emperor, but just think of like any powerful Chinese emperor in Chinese legend and lore, and that's basically what this guy is a rift of is like this powerful emperor, mm-hmm. and it goes into a story about like he made this deal with death, and now he's having a hard time trying to fulfill that deal, and someone ends up dying because he was unable to fulfill part of his deal, and now they're all having to explore the mystery behind that depth. And it goes oh. in, yeah, it literally, it will go into, like, the hooks that you could provide to start off the case. Like, what hook gets this party to start looking into this? Mm-hmm. And then it goes into, it actually has them all listed out as the different depths of this story. And then it'll give you, like, if you do this, here's the stuff that you could provide for it and all of that kind of deal. And it just goes, and it really, for the MC, these MCs, for the MCs, when it comes to these cases, it really does provide you with everything you need to know. So that way you can run this perfectly, or you can work around it if something happens as well. Oh, that's perfect then. Yeah, uh, and I think that is fantastic to always have a good like intro 
like adventure yeah adventure if you play D is more so the term but like um an intro to actually playing the game like that where they set it up super super well especially just to like lead you through the process and lead the like player characters through the process as well on actually learning the game as you play versus just kind of going in on the deep end of like doing like a homebrew thing at first Ver- like you could just like actually do one of these pre-written things that will that you'll learn the game while you play. Yeah, and I know the free quick start on a Cita City Myth site it has like very basic very very basic idea of everything so that way you could like run one of the two cases it comes with like right off the bat. But if you want to be a little more like a little more in depth, you can always get the all seeing eye investi- this investigation starter set, which has almost everything you need to run an in person city of mist game. It has like a basic, pl- very basic player's guide. It's not as in depth as the re- actual player's guide because the starter set actually has five different uh, pre generated characters that you can use that the players can use mm-hmm. instead. And that, and the one I mentioned, Job, the the pastor Job that can't die. He's one of those characters in that set. And then nice. it also has, it also has a mini version of the master ceremonies book. And it's definitely, it's not as it is nowhere as um, deep as this, as the MC toolkit, but it gives you basically all the main basics that you need to know, like all the moves and everything, what you can do, oh, how to, how to run the game. And then what, one thing I love about uh, these cases is there's always a section that's called the aftermath. And this is basically like, depending on how things went, what has happened now, now that this is all ended. Mm-hmm. And I just like that idea because it gives you like, okay, so if this happened, what's the outcome of that? If this happened, what's the outcome of that now, now that this is all over kind of deal? Absolutely. And you can kind of do that almost epilogue type thing of like going over, you know, what changed after you run through that scenario. Oh, I like that a lot, actually. <laughs> That's really cool. I absolutely (laughs) I absolutely enjoy the power of the cliffhanger that it leaves on the players when it seems like you end the game because literally for my demons and cross end case since they just outright destroyed it instead of trying to seal it away I had an end where someone was going where some people were going through the site someone finds the deer skull and just for a moment there's a faint glint in the skull's eye oh my god (laughs) I love that so much. It's yeah, so, so I, yes, and end games with more cliffhangers, even if they're, you're not going to return to them. It's just fun. <laughs> yeah, like like the cliffhanger I did for my uh, via for going viral cases, so good because I actually it was kind of stuff that I had talked about with the play with one of the players about because it revolved around like an NPC that was related to one of the players. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so with we are- the PCs and mysteries. Um, oh, actually, there is one thing that I wanted to uh, go over: custom moves. Ah, yes. Um, let me get back to that. Uh, yeah, and create how custom- to, like create them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of went over this a little bit, but not in depth. But this is more like how do like when you're if you're just entirely homebrewing an NPC or a danger, and you're coming up with a custom move for it. Like, what do you want to do with it? Like, what conditions do they have? Um, some custom moves may include a roll. Like, like literally, like, there are some moves where it's like, even if you, like, a, a, a custom move can be, like, if you even get a 7 through 9, it would be considered a failure instead of a mixed success, depending mm-hmm. on the type of cr- a person you're trying to make. 
So it's really just all about like what you're trying to do with that person for the most part. And it just kind of goes into like the different kind of guidelines for how to do certain moves, like the active shield, which is like how much of something can this person take or how much less damage do they take? Um, there's the countdown outcome that we talked about earlier. So when mm-hmm. that countdown hits its status, what happens? And it actually goes, it actually does shows like examples of some of them on here mm-hmm. as well. So like it says for lycanthropy, when a bike victim's transformation three spectrum is maxed out, he or she transforms completely, replace the, Replace bite victim with the danger hungry werewolf. Oh no, <laughs> that's dangerous. No, that's really cool. Yeah, no, I I like custom moves. They're really awesome. So, are these ones more so? Are the custom moves? It seems like there's options for custom moves that relate more towards like the NPCs or dangers. Are there also custom moves that are closer to like the basic moves where there's like a trigger that then you roll? Like there's a trigger that lets you use that move that then you roll for that you can create? So usually as the MC, you don't usually you're not usually using your dice for almost anything. A lot of this is kind of like preset stuff you will do. Oh, well, I'm saying even for the characters, like, are there moves mm-hmm. that you can set up for the character? Are there custom moves that you can create for the characters like that? So I would, so the the custom moves, I think in this book, more apply to the dangers and the NPCs. I mm-hmm. would say what you were talking about refers to like the theme improvements that players could take throughout the game. Where it's like, if you get like, even if you get like a uh, seven through nine on like a, a mixed success on like a roll, it could be treated as a complete success instead of a mixed success. Mm-hmm. So I would call the theme improvements almost similar to like custom moves. But then again, you also have like change the change the game move that can impose statuses on other people as well. When you do go to a tower hit with all you got, you impose statuses that way as well. Mm-hmm. So you don't so you don't really have the option as like players as characters to like just immediately do like a custom move. Like I don't think you be you like you wouldn't have like a countdown outcome for a player. Now, uh, now, an NPC can oppose a countdown outcome on you for something to happen, mm-hmm. but this, but this is more going into talking about NPCs and dangers and custom moves for them. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, cool. I, I'm just curious because again, I I have more of my roots within Monster of the Week, and in that game, you are. It's very flexible. With you can create custom moves. Um, usually, you know, you can create a custom move that your um, danger or your monster can use, but you can create ones that M- or not NPCs uh, that the players can use with if you just assign a stat and say what a trigger is. So I was curious if City of Mist had something similar like that as well, but that's cool that it is within the dangers because that gives a lot more flexibility on what you can do with them. Yeah, awesome. it also also gives the good understanding of like the challenge that you can impose like on your players as well, depending on what kind of game you're trying to run. Because <laughs> So what I usually I'll start off with like if they're just doing like some mini fights here and there I'm not gonna make them like go all out on the players because it's like this is just something that's going to lead up to like the main event. But once mm-hmm. they get to that final boss, I that's I take the, there's no kitty gloves on it anymore. I'm not holding back <laughs> when it comes to the final boss. Of course, because that's the final boss. I mean, like that is the thing that you are. That is the main enemy. <laughs> I've had no TPKs yet. Keyword yet. <laughs> One day. 
<laughs> no, but yeah, that's great. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to think. I There might be more things that the book covers. So I don't want to cover every single thing in the book because I do want people to, you know, want to go out and look through it because I think any personally for me i think one of one of the most fun things to do is to flip through a ttrpg book just to see the concepts that they create the rules the mechanics stuff like that i find that very fascinating so i always want people to go out and search for the book so i don't know if i want to cover too much within too much more within the book i think i want to get into do you specifically after reading the mc toolkit have advice for people wanting to run city of mist hmm um definitely i would say definitely make sure you're kind of uh looking at your making sure you understand concepts of your role and your principles as the mcs because mm-hmm. i because i feel like i was already doing some of those to begin with i don't think i was but i just didn't realize how much of like a priority they took as being an mc Mm-hmm. Especially when it, especially like when it comes down to being the referee, like I said, I think that's one of the most. That's one, if if not the top, like most important role that you have as an MC is you are the referee. You are in charge of how this game is run, because yeah. it's also not just for the players' enjoyment; it's for your enjoyment as well. And mm-hmm. you don't want to make yourself you don't want to make yourself uncomfortable just for so everyone else can be enjoying it as well. And you also have to know when when to like put your foot down and draw that hard line on certain things as well. Exactly. And, it's all kind of a balancing act. But like I said, and I like and like I said the last episode, you're still wanting to have fun with it. You can still change things as you play as well. But if there's something that's going on and you're like they're trying to fight you on it, or this is something you feel like shouldn't be doing, you gotta have the courage to just put your foot down on that sometimes. <laughs> and they may not always like you for it, but if that's the case for that, that player might not just be a good fit for your table. Yeah, exactly. Not every not every person's going to fit at your table and going to fit with your your play style as a MC or GM or whatever role that you are taking as running a game. It do, it's not always a match. So it's okay if there is a it's okay if there is a problem at the table because I think those are important moments to work those things out and really know if a group is going to work together well. Yeah, and I mean, even with those issues that I had, it's like we ended up still doing on a good game. And once I start editing and releasing those, I'm sure everyone else is going to like them too. But that was just one moment I had that I just remembered that just stuck with me still because mm-hmm. I never had that really had that much of an issue before. And then that happened. I was just like, when I think back on it now, I'm just like, I really wish I kind of was a little more stern on that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, I've I've even had those moments with some of my players where there's a point where I brought in a new rule. And so we were kind of getting used to using this new rule and stuff in my D and D game. And one of the players was fighting me on one of the aspects of the rule. And at that point it was like, you know, we're just going to rule it as this for now. And I'll look further into it later to see if maybe I got it wrong. If this is how it is, if that's just what we're going to have to deal with. And then any adjustments that I could make if I, if I felt that it was necessary, and, you know, it's not that that player was wrong or anything for doing that. It was just that was what happened in that moment. It was just like the little bit of fighting on the rule. And then turns out I did misinterpret part of the rule and we were able to fix it. And now we play with that rule perfectly. Uh, but if I 
as also a if I as the GM wanted to just have the rule like that and set it up that way, I would set it up the way that I already had it. I would be completely open with my players. This is how the rule is going to be. If you guys don't like it, we can see what we can adjust. If that's how the rule was going to be. And there was already a little bit of a fight on it. But I think those moments, even though they can be very frustrating or jarring, are very important to have to see if there are aspects of the game to make it better for your players or even knowing, even realizing like, oh, I have to kind of take a bigger stand like you did, Hunter, of, you know, I need to be better at that because then things can kind of get a little too chaotic. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with those people that will you know, fight on a rule. I don't always enjoy doing it at the table and like to keep it for later, but I think those are important moments. Yeah, I've definitely had my fair share of like accidentally misinterpreting something or just accidentally reading a rule wrong and I'll have the players call me on it. I'm like, are you sure? And we'll both, we'll look through it together. And if I was incorrect, I'll be like, oh, I apologize. And either I'll recon what happened to fit the rule or I'll say next time something like this happens again, I'll remember this rule kind of deal. <laughs> You're never yeah, going to exactly. get... You're never going to get anything 100% correct on everything. Because, like, I mean, just this MC2 kit alone, there's so much into it that it's like, and there's stuff was like, oh, yeah, I've been doing things kind of this way far. And there's other things where it's like, oh, I never even knew that was like part of it before. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's just, it's as Captain Jack Sparrow says, they're more like guidelines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just it's I mean the best way to look at it is that is the structure that is the structure that is helping you play that game. You don't have it, it's guidelines. You don't have to follow every single bit. You can interpret and change rules if it fits for your table. Like I don't think that at least personally for me in the way that I like to play games. I never want to play games. I never want to feel in the position that I have to play a game by the book or else I'm playing it wrong because I think it's more fun to interpret and to use those rules in interesting ways and even adjust and and leave some of those rules out for your own games because that just makes it more fun. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, you still kind of want to keep like the basic rules and stuff for the most oh, of part, course. but definitely you don't want to be like 100% rules is written for every single thing. Rule cool mm-hmm. and homebrew should always kind of take a hot step above every now and then as well, in my opinion. Exactly. I, I completely agree because it just, again, it makes more fun. Like th- those are really fun moments uh, when you can, you know, if you play, this is just an example, D&D rules is written, things such as checks will usually take an action. So being able to like do an athletics check or something to jump over a table could, if some, depending on the DM, might rule that as a complete action and not let you do anything more. But if you do rules cool, the DM could let you, you know, jump over that table, make that check, and then do your attack. Those types of things just make you feel even cooler. Like, it's not just, you know, oh, you know, I let you get away with that. No, it's that character gets to feel so much cooler because they got to flip over a table. They got to jump over a table and then attack something. And that's just what their character would do. So they feel really awesome. So those rules of cool are so valuable. Yeah. And if you're playing D or rules is red, that means you have to use encumbrance. And who the fuck wants that? (laughs) Uh, No one. I mean, I'm... (laughs) I, it's it's great. 
Which actually makes this is something I've actually been learning about recently because I've been looking the other Power by the Apocalypse games and so this all stemmed when I started looking more into Thirsty Sword lesbians because we're hearing you talk about that. I got the books and I've been looking about it. When I decided I want to see who else has run it and what everyone's thoughts about it. It is surprisingly very mixed, the reviews for uh, Thirsty Sword Lesbians and Power Body Apocalypse games in general. Like, mm-hmm. there's one guy I was watching, he was kind of doing a review, and one of the last things he said was, this is a guy This is a guy who's like a very strong like D&D guy, for the most part. He said, he called, he said, uh, Power Body Apocalypse games are basically games for lazy GMs. And I was just kind that of is an interpretation. <laughs> I, it's an inter- it's, he's, it's, a, it's your opinion. He has the right to it, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's an entirely correct one. I there's different GMs and everyone has different styles. But I was just so interested in how mixed like games like Thirsty Sword Lives and Power Buddy Apocalypse games in general. I'm surprised at how mixed reviews about those are out there because mm-hmm. I'm. Because again, City of Mist was my first game I ever played. I had never played D and D, never played Pathfinder, nothing like that. And so, and I, and I go more, lean more towards the role playing and the narrative style of many games, no matter which ones I run. And so, you could say it's a lazy DM's game. I say it's for the creative GM's game for those who want to be able to have that artistic expression, to just kind of do what they want and go with the flow. Because I think you can look at it being. You know, you can look at someone who runs Empowered by the Apocalypse game, let's say with the looser prep style that we have talked about. You could look at that and say that's a lazy way to GM. However, sure, that could be a lazy way to GM in your eyes, but that it's exactly it. You're opening up that creative freedom. You're giving those opportunities for the players to surprise you and to bring the stories in different directions versus something like D&D Pathfinder, things like that require more prep in general because of the way the game is. Cause you need to have stat blocks and plan encounters and a bunch of things like that. So it requires more prep in general, but some, you could still, I even run my D&D games closer to how I run my Powered by the Apocalypse games with doing the base, you know, beginning, middle, end thing for the sessions and keeping it as loose as possible with that structure that I need when I need it. So if I need to do more prep because I'm going to run an encounter, I'm going to do that. But I feel like it puts a lot less pressure on the people who are running the games, the GMs, to have something that is quote unquote a lazier GM game because it gives you so much more that you can work off of and it isn't completely on you all the time to then stress you out and do hours of prep before each session. A lot of GMs would actually say that either doing little prep or barely any prep is the best way to run a game because if you can create like a whole entire storyline for how you want something to go. And the players are just still going to automatically throw it at the window at some point with something. All it takes is for one thing to go wrong and your whole thing's now out the window. Exactly. So. Yeah. I, I, it's just in my, in my opinion, because these are all about opinions. If your play style is you really like to do those super high prep, crunchier games and you enjoy that, go ahead, do it. No one's stopping you because those are fun for you. Play those games. If you don't like things that are lower prep or, you know, again, quote unquote, lazier, DM style or GM style, 
don't play those games. Those aren't for you, but those are for plenty of other people. And I think the worst thing that you can do is try and is try and force yourself to fit into a game and a game style that doesn't work for you because that is going to cause no even if it is low prep and that is I guess technically easier that might cause you more stress because that is just not how your that's not how your GM style works and that just doesn't fit your play style in general so you should play something that matches your your style of game much better. I do want to add this in really quick because it does say this in the in the MC Toolkit 2. It says you don't want to completely railroad your characters when they're playing, which I understand to extent, but I want to add that sometimes railroading is okay if you're still trying to stay on story and your players are just going completely like off the rails entirely, like not even playing the game at that point in general. And this yeah, was so- I- I agree. <laughs> in 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 instances. <laughs> and this was another issue I had was after the final session was done recording and everything, the same player accused me of I never heard this term before. I guess god modding or god moding the game to an extent where I which I guess they were trying to say I was being too controlling or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean I think there were some instances I look back, I'm like, yeah, I probably was like this or there. But at the same point, it's like I'm running a podcast. We have this case we're trying to run. I don't always I don't have the free time for the players to just go all over the place and do whatever Mm -hmm. they feel like doing. It's like there's still a story like if it tied into the actual game that was happening, then, yeah, they could go do that. I have no issue with that. But if there's a, but if you're if the, but the players all coming together, it's like they're running to be part of this story and trying to solve this case that happens. Then that should be part of the focus of the players in the game, not just especially not all, for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, not just to always go and do whatever they want. Which depending on if there's like if it's a downtime thing, yeah, go do what you want. Like we discussed, like you could easily just go out and like power yourself up, no problem. But mm-hmm. when but when the mic, but when the recording's on and the mics are picking up the audio, yeah, we got stuff we got to do, and it's yeah, because like, that creates more editing for you to then have to go back and be like, okay, parts that don't, I guess, really matter depending on you know how you want to edit your episodes. I there's always I feel like negative association with railroad, and I think most of the time, in a lot of cases, that's understandable because there are gms that want to control the game at any point and play a very specific story but i think there's a difference between railroad and trying to keep on track which is again a part of the role as a gm as the person running the game part of your role is to keep people on track keep the story going stuff like that so for for me, I've always found, and I I don't want to use the term railroad, but in my case, I've run a few one shots where things will start to you know go like break into role play, or they want to start to do that. I'll usually let that happen for a bit, give those players that like brief moment of satisfaction, like they were able to do this thing, because I want them to have fun, and then we can, and then I'm still able to kind of 
bring it back to what they're doing on it. And it's like, all right, what next is happening? You know, you just completed this room. Uh, you completed this challenge in this room. What's going on next? This person um, or like the person who's running this exam, because I played definitely Wizards not that long ago. Uh, this person running the exam is going to um, start to introduce the next room and we're going to start going that way. And with those types of things, because it's like a one shot or like a mini game where we're only playing like one to three sessions, we're going to keep things more on track and all of that and more focused because we want to try and get the story done. We want to try and get that situation over with. And I think that's, again, where playstyle can come into play is if those people just really wanted to more so enjoy the game as a sandbox versus try and follow the specific story. That's a bit of a mix of expectations. So there's actually a podcast I listened to, and these guys have supported me since day one, and I've done them likewise. They're called they're a D&D podcast group called the Eldritch Buds. And the DM Connor created this homebrew world setting for the players. So spoiler alert for this story, if you haven't listened to it yet, but it's they've been going on for a while. They're in like the 30s or 40s on their episodes now, I think. Mm-hmm. So there's a point in the story where they're live. They're all working under this guy and the guy's daughter. The daughter gets kidnapped, and so the the father sends the party out to go find them. For the next ten episodes, they're in this city doing everything but looking for this guy's daughter. Mm-hmm. And I actually messaged uh, Connor about this, and I was just like, "Are they gonna do anything? Are they gonna actually go with the story?" And he's like. I got something planned in mind. So about mm-hmm. another so about another 10 episodes later after that, they find a daughter, but the daughter's mind has now been implanted in a giant murder hobo robot. Oh my. <laughs> and it was one of those things where it's like, well, because you derailed it for so long, this is now the consequence of that. Mm-hmm. And that's that is fair. I and that's the thing as well. I guess that's more so for me. I don't like looking. I mean, yeah, that was the consequence. Though I don't always want that to feel like a negative thing because that's just then the new direction that that story is going to go in. But it does suck when players do go off track for a bit, and it's hard, especially as a GM. To be like, you know, I want them to enjoy and have fun. But also, and it's the whole thing with the referee, where it's like, I want this thing, I want them to have fun, but I also want to stay true to whatever the game's going to be, whatever the story we're going through. And it can be very frustrating. And actually, you saying that reminds me of a situation that happened in my own personal game, my D&D game, where... They were traveling and they were deciding to visit the home of one of the characters. And what was going to be supposed to just visit and then they were continuing on with this much bigger mission of trying to defeat essentially an army from this island that's slowly taking over the continent. That was the whole goal. But they ended up spending like instead of one you know, one to three sessions in this place, which would have been enough, they ended up spending almost, I think it was 10 or 11 sessions 
in this place and mostly just messing around and not really doing things with the story. And I always have a hard time looking back on that because it's like, yes, that was really fun. We had a good time. We were able to do some fun role play things and some fun, like kind of goofing off things. But at the same time, made no progress in the actual story. And I did have to make decisions for what was happening within the whole world and what was happening around them and advancements that happened there because they spent so much time within this city doing nothing. So actually I I very much feel, (laughs) I feel that um, story that you shared because it, it, it's very hard to kind of control both sides. Be like, I want them to have fun, but I want to make sure that we play this story. Yeah, I think the part that really drove me kind of a little more hardcore about that is it was even after she did that, and even after I apologized, she ended up like blocking me for messenger messaging her on Discord, which really stunk because I was actually in the process of making an artwork made for them of their characters. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I was just kind of like, really? You failed this. I apologize, even though I now really don't think I really had to apologize that much as I did for it. And then you're going to be petty like that. It's kind of my thing. And it's just like, fine, whatever then. At that point. People should be also more. I, I feel this very personally. I think people should be okay and more accepting of making mistakes in games like this. It's so easy. It's so easy to rule something wrong or make a mistake in the story or making a mistake for someone's character or a character making a mistake. And those mistakes can be, you know, maybe I was a little bit too controlling. But that's something that you kind of have to learn about yourself and then you can improve. You have to make those mistakes to learn. And... At least for me, I think people should be more accepting of mistakes like that. And it can really suck to play in a game where, you know, it feels a certain way. But I think that mistakes in general for TTRPG should be more accepted because you're all you're all doing this together. It's it's a group of people playing the game. There are bound to be mistakes, especially if you're running a new game or a system or a story, anything like that. There's going to be mistakes. And so that does really suck that that happened. And that should have been a moment instead of contention. It should have been a moment to try and talk this out and, you know, be like, you know, it felt a little the person could have been like, it felt a little controlling in that you could have then taken that as, you know, criticism, which sucks, but you can then take that to future games and keep that in mind to try and fix that. Or maybe that was just that person's experience and what they thought, and you can still keep that in mind and within future games that you play. And then you can become a better game runner by making these mistakes and hearing them from your players. Yeah, I completely agree with you 100% on that. It's like, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think also, it was also one of the things where this was all, the majority of this was all said like after it was all done. Instead mm-hmm. of like, just throughout the camp, the case, it was like, hey, there's this and this. Because I'm one of those guys where, unless you tell me outright that I'm possibly doing something wrong, I can't change what I don't know needs to be changed kind of deal. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, part of can't. the autism. Yeah, you can't know. <laughs> That's part of the autism in me is because I can't pick up on social cues and I can't read your mind. 
So unless mm-hmm. you tell me upright, hey, uh, this has been going on. We don't like this. Or I think you're being too controlling here. I can't fix that if you don't tell me. So uh, that was also part of the other issue, I think, was they saved it all for the very end. But other than that, yeah, you are absolutely 100% right. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I, another thing that I truly like making mistakes in TTRPGs, I think, needs to be normalized. I think also just being better at communicating during games should also be the norm because I have made some massive improvements in my own games with just trying to, op- with just opening up communication better and creating an environment where I want, where the players can come to me if they are having a hard time with the game and even starting those conversations myself if I see signs of, oh, wait, this person might not be enjoying this right now and trying to deal with those instances when they happen versus letting them kind of, and I'm not saying you let it like boil over or anything like that. It was the person that needed to kind of bring that up to you and just kind of creating an open space for those conversations is I think really, really important uh, when it comes to running TTRPGs so that everyone knows what's happened. So you don't have to rely on trying to read someone's mind. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with that. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> going over I the think- MC toolkit and then just being MCs in general, it ties perfectly <laughs> in. It really does because I I think that's a bit of a benefit with this podcast is having those conversations of just talking about experiences and ways that you know different people create stories or approach games or approach even running games and playing games, stuff like that. I think those, those are some of my favorite moments. You know, I love to hear about the games. I love learning about them and exploring. That's my favorite thing, but also something I love as well is just those conversation moments of like exactly what we just did talking about the, you know, the situation, communication, making mistakes and, and stuff like that. So I think it is fantastic. <laughs> uh, but I think, oh, yeah, I, th- I was actually about to say, I think we're about to the end here, though. I'm trying to think if there's some other stuff that we haven't covered. Like I will um, just kind of add on top of all this. If you if if you all decide to get this. You can actually get the player's gun and the MC toolkit with a with a MC screen as well to go with it. And the MC screen has like all the player moves and MC moves in it as well. So that way you have that in advance as well. So you don't have to flip the book every time for everything. But Perfect. if you listen to these two City of Mist podcasts we do, because we basically went over basically the majority of the player's gun in the first one. Then we just went almost a full depth on the MC toolkit. If you like these, you get the books and you enjoy it. I highly recommend you get the uh, Into the Mist uh, set, which is the, uh, contains the Knights of Pain Town campaign book, and then the expansion Shadows and Showdowns, which mm-hmm. has a bunch of other great details. And uh, we're probably, I'm pro- definitely don't think we're going to come back and talk about that. I'm going to leave that one for the listeners to check out for themselves if they are, yes. if they just enjoy it that much. <laughs> Get into City of Mist. It's really cool game. I haven't actually played it myself yet, but hearing the stories from Hunter and like all the things from it, I'm like. Yes, I'm very excited. I'm slowly, I'm slowly playing through games right now. I have like a small group that we've just been playing on Mondays. It's like we're just gonna play this game this week and this game that week. So I'm I'm very excited to get to City of Mist with that because it is a very cool game. And yeah, 
you know, if you are interested, go look into the game itself. It's by uh, Son of Oak Game Studio. Uh, and you can get, they have all their books. Uh, you can get physical or PDF copies of their books. They're all fantastic. Uh, make sure to check out Hunter's podcast, uh, Mysteries Unknown. Mystery spelled with an I instead of a Y because mist, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and then also the Rolling in the Mist podcast as well. So that you can check out and see how these games are actually played and hear examples of them. Because actual plays are a fantastic way to really get into games and learn about them like really thoroughly. So yeah, thank you so much Hunter for coming on again and talking about the MC toolkit with me. Yeah, I was going to, it was really fun. I love being on here and I have a feeling this definitely will not be the last time I'm on here since there's so many other TTRPGs as well, especially since I got the, especially since I decided to finally get the girl by moonlight. I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Yes. And <laughs> unless you find someone better than me to get on there, I'll probably be back on at who knows what point, but I'm pretty sure this <laughs> will not be the last for sure. Exactly. A point in time, we'll figure out a game, we'll figure out something. <laughs> All right. Cash out my plugs real quick. Oh, absolutely. And so if you ever want to follow me, reach out to me, you can find me on Instagram either at Mist Unk Podcast, M I S T U N K Podcast for Mysteries Unknown. Or you can follow me at IDK How to DM, which is my for my I don't know how to DM podcast slash TTRPG meme page, as I call it. And you can <laughs> oh, and if you want to reach out to discuss anything else, you can always hit me up at mistunkpodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. Fantastic. <laughs> I totally recommend checking out all of all of Hunter's Instagrams and following along with the podcast as well, because he's fantastic and it's all fantastic. Just Get into fantastic games, please. Thanks. Get the game. Get the game. Um, get the game. Exactly. It, if City of Mist sounds awesome, get City of Mist because also the books are really, really cool. Um, <laughs> but yes, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode. And yeah, this is the end. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, I had a fantastic time recording it with Hunter, and the conversations were just amazing, especially since I love delving deep into all things about running games. Plus, City of Mist is amazing itself. If you haven't yet, uh, please make sure to leave a review for the RPG Goblin if you've been enjoying it so far. Um, every little bit of support really means the world. So make sure to leave a review, follow the RPG Goblin on wherever you listen to your podcasts, and follow the RPG Goblin on social media as well. The RPG Goblin is on Instagram at the RPG Goblin, dots in between each of the words, and Twitter at the RPG Goblin. Again, Hunter is an amazing guest, and if you would like to check out what he does, please make sure to go follow him on Instagram at Podcast, also at IDKHowToDM. Uh, also, make sure to listen to his actual podcast, Mysteries Unknown, which is an actual play podcast where he runs City of Mist games. And just from the stories that I've heard and that you have heard as well, it sounds amazing, so please go check him out. All right, so the next episode of the RPG Goblin will be coming out June 16th, and it will be about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And oh my god, I'm so excited to share this with you. This was 
Again, a really fantastic recording. And I know I say that a lot, but this one was just amazing. As someone who started playing D&D, it was mind-blowing to hear all about Pathfinder. So next episode, which will be, again, coming out June 16th, will be about Pathfinder 2nd Edition, where I bring on Jack from Dying 5 Podcast, aka a Pathfinder actual play podcast. So if that sounds awesome, then you should make sure to mark that on your calendars and look out for the next episode. I think that is it, though. Again, thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review and I'll see you next time.